Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 13 and it's October 1975. Two SADF task forces are busy in Angola. Foxbat is in the southeast. The other, Zulu, has just taken the port of Namibe and will head north aiming at Benguela and Lubito after initially swinging back eastwards to the main road. We begin this episode with an update about what had developed with Eddie Webb and his Foxbat task force out to the east. The name Foxbat emerged as both Webb and the other senior officer, Commandant van der Baals, were both Parabats. Foxbat was also the name given by NATO to the latest MiG fighter produced by the Russians. Lots to chew on there. So by October 25th, 1975, Foxbat was on its way westwards from Bailundu to meet up with Task Force Zulu at some point before the all-important date of 11th November. That was when elections were taking place in Angola, despite the fact it was now well on the way to an intractable civil war. But the politicians in Pretoria stressed to the Defence Force that they had to vacate the country by then. As we've discussed, the political strategy was muddle-headed and created major problems for the frontline soldiers fighting this operation. Foxbat's blueprint for the attack, by the way, was a photostat of a road map. They used the road, and by the evening of the 25th of October, had arrived at the bridge over the Quebe River, just east of the small town of Altahama. After a quiet night, the task force left before dawn on the 26th, heading to Lumbali. Webb was aware that there were two companies of Fapla infantry based at Lumbali, around 250 strong, he believed, so decided to approach the town from the south and left the road. He had also received information that the Fapla units were supported by at least two T-34 tanks and three armoured cars. He dispatched three Irland armoured cars backed by UNITA troops to Limbali and they took up a position at a small bridge on the outskirts of town. They were drawn up in a half-moon shape and then they fired two rounds from the 90mm cannon into the town. Moments later, the two T-34 tanks emerged at full speed heading straight for the Irlands. Both tanks were hit by Irland 90 fire and burst into flames, while the 106mm cannon and missile launchers also hit the tanks. The Fapla unit in the town then turned tail and UNITA troops entered. None of the South Africans or their allies had been wounded during this attack. Once again, the swiftness of the assault and direct approach by Foxbat had done the trick. Ten Fapla soldiers were killed and the wounded had been removed by their comrades. When the South Africans checked the burnt-out T-34s, they discovered that six of the dead were Cuban tank crew. The casualties when Cubans and South Africans clashed began to rise. Meanwhile, back in Benguela on the coast, MPLA staff officers had radioed Luanda to appeal for reinforcements, particularly T-34s. At the same time, Foxbat Commander Webb decided to head back east to Altahama, the all-important crossroad town, the way he'd just come. He'd been keeping an eye on another Fopla unit, which was now behind him, and he was aware that Foxbat could be outflanked and then isolated. Things were not going well back at Altahama. The tension between UNITA and FNLA had boiled over, and they clashed. A planned operation by the FNLA to head north had failed, and 600 of their men were now heading back south. They ran into UNITA, which had set up roadblocks outside Altahama, and they were ordered to disarm. This caused chaos in a standoff. The Central Front had other issues. SADF headquarters in Rundu had no idea that Webb had managed to defeat Fapla at Lumbali. They only learned of this on the 28th of October, two days after the town fell. Webb was also receiving confusing orders. So he decided to wait for further orders even further east at Bailundu. He radioed SADF commander at Rundu on the 28th, asking what he should do next. 
It so happened that Major General Constant Fulun, Brigadier Yanni Heldenhuis and Colonel Gleeson had decided to fly into Angola to discuss the latest situation reports with UNITA and FNLA leaders on the ground, so they were unable to make immediate decisions. Communication with these officers could not be established, so Colonel Haramsa in Rundu suggested that it made sense for Foxbat to begin moving north along the Santa Comba Road. But they were also aware that Task Force Zulu was moving northwards from the coast, and this could mean splitting Foxbat. One battle group would head north, the other on the main road westwards to Benguela, where Delville Linford's San 3-1 Battalion would run into serious trouble, as we're going to hear. So Commandant Webb duly split his force, sending Major Holzhausen off north at dawn on the 29th October. The battle group was armed with a recoilless 106mm cannon, a mortar and two Irland armoured cars. A company of UNITA troops joined his battle group to beef up the numbers. A short while later, they halted at the Cueva River Bridge, now known as Bridge 25. A jeep could be seen rushing towards them. On board, two UNITA troops reported that Fapla units were close by and had opened fire on them. At 1.30, the Fapla company appeared, but their transport vehicles were then hit by Holzhausen's recorder's gun and the enemy withdrew further north. During the inspection of the vehicles, the SADF came across the body of a Cuban soldier. He was a colonel dressed in his full uniform. Fapla units were being pushed closer and closer to Luanda, with the South Africans now fully aware that they had not managed to take all the ports south of the capital, and time was running out. It was almost the end of October. They had less than two weeks to make a final impact before the November 11th withdrawal. By now, Foxbat was no longer the ragtag and bobtail force of earlier, as Delville Linford puts it in his book, As the Crow Flies. Foxbat consisted of three companies of offensively trained United troops travelling in seven buses, five troops of armoured cars, two 106mm recoilless guns mounted on jeeps, four UNITA-manned 81mm mortars, three intact missile teams, and four 12.7mm Browning heavy machine guns. Also part of Foxbat, but not always accompanying the task force, were 10 106mm recoilless guns, four Panard 90 armoured cars, and one Panard 60. All were UNITA-controlled, but could be called on to assist at short notice. Another secret weapon the South Africans had managed to liberate was a twin-engine Beechcraft Baron B-55 light aircraft, which UNITA had found deserted at Huambo. SADF collected the plane and managed to fly to Rundu, where it was serviced and then fitted with a Browning machine gun. An experienced South African Air Force pilot, Major Pete Ace, was detached to Rundu to fly the plane, and now the two task forces attacking FAPLA and the MPLA in Angola had access to an excellent aerial reconnaissance capability. It was called Dinky Toy as an ironic twist, but unfortunately, things would not end well. Dinky Toy was then flown over the route that Holzhausen was to take on the Santa Comba Road, and they spotted a large FAPLA force. Another UNITA unit was sent to join him, further strengthening the battle group, and he continued on his way to Lubango, which he took later on the 29th October. Then, a disaster for the South Africans. Their spotter plane, which had been flying up and down the country, crashed, killing all four on board. An SADF team later could not determine what had caused the accident, but now they had lost an important eye in the sky. One of those on board was Colonel Desmond Haramsa of 101 Task Force, who was being deployed as a liaison officer because he was fluent in Portuguese. In a terrible correlation, his son, Captain Louis Haramsa, would be killed in action in Angola six years later during Operation Pretium. On the 31st of October 1975, General Fulun held discussions with UNITA leader Jonas Avimbi in Quito, central Angola. 
They discussed the military and political situation and briefed members of the SADF there once more about how critical it was to get out of Angola by election day, the 11th. Brigadier van der Waals was present and Fulun ordered him to complete the withdrawal plans for both Foxbat and Zulu. Luckily, he had already drawn up a broad outline, which included being flown out of Angola on board South African Air Force C-130 aircraft, while the Foxbat Armoured Car Squadron would move south on its own. Another interesting little aside here, Van der Waals was approached by the Central Intelligence Agency representative based at Quito, who asked if the South Africans were indeed going to leave Angola on the 11th. When Van der Waals answered they were, the American asked to be flown out with them. As we'll see, they did eventually leave Angola on the 15th, and the CIA agent apparently hitched a ride out by C-130, although both the Americans and South Africans have never confirmed this. To the west, Zulu Task Force Alpha Battle Group Commander Colonel Van Heerden had decided to head east to Lubango. From there, he would swing north once more along the main road, heading towards Kakula, then turn northwestly through Kuelengwesh to Benguela on the coast. He'd been joined by an Eland 90 troop commanded by Lieutenant Nel van Rensburg. Remember, the SEDF had taken Lubango a few days previously. In our last podcast, I explained that, and that was on the steady march through Angola. So that town was presumed safe. On the 29th of October, Commandant Linford sent a reconnaissance party up the road from Lubongo to see what was going on. And they reported that Fapla had set up some defensive positions around Kakula, although it appeared Fapla had chosen difficult ground to defend. And there were only 50 men that could be seen in that position. But they were armed with 82mm mortars and 75mm artillery, as well as at least one 82mm recoilless gun. So Alpha Group attacked as quickly as possible. Fapla opened fire when the SADF was around 300 meters away with anti-tank weapons, but all of the shots went overhead. Something was seriously wrong with the enemy's aim, and they were driven away from the trenches in a few minutes. When the SADF examined the mortars and guns, they found that the weapons were brand new and that the sights had never been ranged correctly. A few Fapla casualties were counted, and the SADF took Kakula. This meant they could swing into the secondary road and head for Quelengush and then Benguela. They were climbing to higher ground, and suddenly a massive downpour caught Alpha Group, which was forced to halt, so they decided to stop for the night. Then, at about midnight, a group of vehicles approached from the north, and before they had a chance to turn, the SADF members opened fire with their 90mm cannon. It took out the leading Land Rover. Five Fapla bodies were found inside, along with a Cuban officer. They only learned how important he was two days later, when a Fapla radio call was intercepted, which reported that Comrade Batala, a Cuban, was listed as missing in action. He was charged with defending Quelingresh from the approaching SADF, and his death had grave implications for the MPLA. It must be noted that the Cubans, like the South Africans, had a habit of senior officers being deployed on the front lines. Both armies were born of a fight against imperialism of some sort, where the culture implied that the leaders actually led, rather than sat around in the HQ drinking coffee and staring at the war map. This would be repeated throughout the next 15 years of warfare between these two armies, and a begrudging level of mutual respect also grew year after year, as we'll hear. So, the Fapla defenders of Quilinguish melted away as the SADF drove closer and headed further northwest towards the Gol of Benguela. However, there were a few significant towns to take before this port, including Katenge and Koporolo, which was alongside the Koporolo River, and a large mountain. It was now November 1st. Time was running out. 
Alpha pushed onwards by 60 kilometers and arrived at Chongorol, which was undefended. The residents there said that Fafla had set up defences along the Koporola River around 20 kilometers north of the town and were ready for action. Commandant Linford was travelling in point position in the Irland 90, right at the front of the task force. He spotted the Fafla positions and it was then decided to outflank the enemy and collect information from the high mountain alongside the position known as Sierra do Uco. After some recon, Task Force Commander van Yerden decided that they should try and avoid damaging the large bridge of the Koporolo River, as it would be required when the SADF retraced its steps at some point in the future. Battle Group Alpha would head down to a small drift crossing south of the Fapla positions, then outflank the enemy. The problem was this battle group got lost. Then, in what must be seen as a semi-crazy decision, Colonel Dries van Heeren and Major van Koller decided they would approach the bridge on foot. So at 2 p.m., they had wriggled close enough and realized that there were no defenders, which surprised these experienced officers. They did spot the explosives had been placed along the pillars of the bridge, but there were no electrical connections. Papla had fled with their heavy weapons and failed to blow the bridge. Task Force Zulu was now on the road to Katenga, the last town of note before Benguela, and flanked by the vital rail link. Both Task Force Zulu and Foxbat were now close, and the danger grew that they would somehow fire on each other, as communications were extremely difficult. Foxbat, which had approached from the east and reached as far as Barbera, which is not far from Katenga, then Commandant Webb, who led the task force, decided to withdraw as Fapla had been reported behind them at Kubal. Zulu drove into Katenga, a single line of houses and businesses. It was now a ghost town. Nothing moved and no one could be found. A perfect place to set up a temporary HQ, which is exactly what Colonel van Eerden did. He ordered the local airfield to be measured as they were running low on food, and this could serve as a landing strip for Dakotas to drop off mini meal and dried fish, amongst other provisions. They had loads of tinned food after seizing these from the Fapla convoys, but the troops were hankering after pup and fish. Commandant Breitenbach and his battle group Bravo were given the task of defending this HQ. The Noddy cars under Captain Jack Dippenau drove onto the high ground northwest of the town to keep an eye out along with a company of United troops. There were three hills ranged along the banks of the Kantenka River, and they set off towards the highest. But Fapla was waiting. Dippenar's armoured cars rode over the first, then the second hill, but at the third they were almost hit by high explosive rounds fired from an unknown weapon and being fired extremely accurately. They turned back for reinforcements. Little did the South Africans know that the Fapla battalion they were now facing had been training and preparing for this battle for some time. They had ranged their weapons properly and since August 1975 been mentored by Cuban advisers. They were also the best prepped FAPLA unit probably in the entire region and now the South Africans were going to have to try and overcome this highly motivated force. FAPLA and the Cubans had selected the highest hill overlooking the all-important main road heading towards Benguela for their defences and had set up anti-tank weapons on the hill dominating the high ground. The array of weapons facing the South Africans was impressive, including RPG-7s, two recoilless 82mm guns and two 75mm cannon, all ranged very precisely along a road the SADF would have to take. This was a completely different level of fighting capability, and the SADF commander van Heerden was still not fully aware that the men he was to face were of a different calibre to those he'd faced so far. Never underestimate your enemy, they say. Behind this hill, there was even more going on. Papla had set up a number of 82mm mortar positions, as well as four 120mm single-missile launchers, the feared Red Eye, 
which we've met. And behind this prickly set of armaments was their tactical headquarters. At first, Task Force Zulu had to extricate itself from this sticky position. What the SADF didn't know was that more than 70 highly trained Cuban soldiers were manning these high-tech weapons, and they had a great deal of fighting experience. The thick bush in the area meant the South African Ilan 90 noddy cars could only be deployed off-road in a limited fashion. Just to compound the problems facing the attacking force, they would also have to approach this hill across an extremely narrow bridge. Captain Dipinar recognised the danger. They were being squeezed into a narrow, confined area, whereupon the defenders would blow up the bridge, and then it would be a turkey shoot. The recoilless guns would have peppered the islands, which would have been lined up in a row along this narrow road, and then gunned down any infantry alongside. It would have been suicide to continue without some alternative plan. Dipinar decided to send the infantry in on the right side of the road in a single line, the thick bush meant that they would be out of sight of the high ground until the last moment. A firefight then broke out with the FNLA troops working with the South Africans to lay down fire while the Elans would poke their guns out, fire a shot in reverse. An SADF mortar section behind these men was then targeted by the extremely accurate fire from Fopla. They had obviously ranged the area really well and the mortar bombs were uncomfortably close to SADF mortar section Sergeant Cliff and Staff Sergeant Gush. Needless to say, these two beat a hasty retreat. Both infantry and airlines were beginning to run out of ammunition, so they also returned to the town. Colonel von Herden knew now he was in a predicament. The force facing them was too well managed and powerful to attack head-on without some creative military tactics. He had to find an alternative way to deal with this Fapla battalion and its Cuban artillery. Their road map showed a tiny secondary route that headed directly westward to the small town of Cristobal then swept back to the main road 30 kilometres further. Perhaps, he thought, they could outflank this powerful Fapla force in the meantime. So it was then that Alpha Group was dispatched along this track. Meanwhile, Commandant Breitenbach and Major Slubbert, with his bright shock of red hair and beard, made their way to high ground 5 kilometres from the Fapla positions to take stock. At 3pm, the South Africans tried for a third time to overrun Fapla. They managed to use the thick bush alongside the road as protection and reached about two and a half kilometers from the Fapla artillery. The Elans were firing constantly and as they halted on the second hill, they discharged a large number of smoke grenades to protect the infantry who were now going to try and cross the narrow bridge. Meanwhile, the mortar sections were firing constantly. In 15 minutes, they used most of the ammunition and the pipes were so hot that some of the rounds were set off prematurely. A number of SADF troops were injured including one by the name of Els, who was burned so badly he had to be Kazavaked back to Rundu and then Pretoria. But the constant and by now more accurate Elant and mortar fire had unnerved the Fapla battalion and the Cuban artillery units on the high ground. Fapla artillery suddenly stopped firing and retreated, leaving their own infantry alone ranged along the slopes to face the South African heavy weapons and soldiers approaching at speed. Fapla were dug in north of the road just below this hill, they had pinned down previous SADF infantry attacks so that troops were lying prone, avoiding the machine gun and automatic weapon rounds. That's not a good situation for the South Africans. It was their third attempt at taking the strategic road, and Fapla was still making things very difficult for them. Two Vickers heavy machine guns were moved into position to provide cover, and then the infantry began to advance using fire and move techniques. The men were spread out and squads would run forward a short distance while the Allies fired between them, then drop and provide covering fire for their colleagues. This is an extremely dangerous form of attack, 
for a partially trained company, as friendly fire incidents can happen in the heat of battle. But it's also extremely effective if conducted at high speed in thick bush. Fapler had never seen this technique used before, and the shock of seeing troops moving so fast was too much, and finally they broke and fled. It was 6 p.m. It had taken three hours of hard fighting to take this hill, and the SADF commanders had been given notice that the next few battles were going to be far more challenging than the first few. A number of FNLA troops fighting with the South Africans were wounded, but miraculously, no one had been killed on the South African side. However, a large number of enemy bodies were found in the trench. The SADF was going to run into even more effective defences as they tried to seize the town of Benguela. The battle for the airport was to prove to be one of the most difficult moments these men would experience in the entire Operation Savannah. Well, that's it for this week. Time for a debrief before the assault on Benguela. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also contact me through my Twitter handle, at Des Latham, or send an email through the site abwarpodcast.com. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.